We're going to read now our uh, second reading for the, to prepare for the sermon from Colossians. And we're going to read uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through to 23. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I probably haven't said it quite enough lately, but it'd be great to keep your Bible open uh, as we work our way through the passage and particularly in a book like Colossians. Uh, when, in Proverbs, which we did last time, you're sort of flicking around a lot, but in Proverbs it's very dense and so I'll put the verses up on the screen as we work our way through, but it's just really helpful to have the whole thing sort of sitting in front of you and you get to sort of see how A leads to B leads to C and, and you get the whole picture. So I just encourage you to do that, whether it's by you know device or, or hard copy. I personally like hard copy, but Whatever works for you. But let me pray as we get into this passage. Uh, Dear Lord, uh, in the words of Psalm 25, guide us in your truth and teach us, for you are our saviour and our hope is in you all day long. Amen. Sometimes in life our expectations are too big. Uh, So, for example, I remember uh, going to Paris and we were going to the Louvre and we are seeing the Mona Lisa and I was very excited about seeing the Mona Lisa because this is the most famous painting in the world. And then I I, I arrived there in this big gallery and the first thing that you notice about the Mona Lisa is it's surprisingly small. And so now, now I'm sure you know it's pearls to swine. I get that. And you know when you get into the detail, amazing picture. But first impressions, it's kind of like a mm, little underwhelming. Uh, on the same trip, uh, we, we went uh, to Italy, uh, which is kind of nice. So we went to see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And again, beautiful building, right? And you know, quite intricate. And whenever you see the photos, it looks huge. Turns out, not so much. It's, you know, when you put it next to the cathedral, and even that makes it look half decent, it is quite small. Right? And again, you sort of look at it, you're expecting big things, and it doesn't quite deliver. Uh, so sometimes our expectations are too big, but also in life, sometimes our expectations 
are too small. And I, I think for the most part, our expectation when it comes to the Son of God is too small. Now, when I think about the Son of God, my mind gravitates most naturally to Jesus and his earthly ministry. And it's pretty spectacular. He calms the storm, he heals the the lame and the blind. Uh, His ethical teaching is beautiful in its simplicity. Uh, So he takes an idea like love your neighbour, which is not uniquely Christian or Jewish for that matter, but he takes something so simple and he infuses it with this radical idea of grace. And it completely reorientates the way that we think about love from less about me and more about the other. Uh, And then, of course, we get to the events of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, Put together, that's a pretty big picture of Jesus. Uh, That's an earth-sized picture of Jesus. But our passage today paints an even bigger picture a more awe-inspiring picture. Uh, It puts the Son of God in the context of all that has been created. And then, just as quickly, it brings it back to us and to humanity. Uh, So today I want to look at the passage under two headings, uh, picking up the language of our passage. So the first is Creator, the firstborn over all creation, and the second is Reconciler, uh, the firstborn over. From amongst the dead. And our passage begins The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn doesn't mean the first to be created, it's a description of his authority. The firstborn son in a household was given the authority to represent the family and to represent the father, and the son here is given authority to represent his father. And he's the image of God. Now, often when we talk about the image of God, we talk about us as humans uh, created in God's image. Uh, But if you were to look to humanity to get a clear picture of God and the nature of God, you'd be pretty disappointed uh, because we are so marred and messed up by our sin. Uh, But Jesus is the exact untainted but visible representation of God. Uh, We cannot see God the Father or God the Spirit, but God has made himself visible through the Son. And God is so united in being that he can be called one, and at the same time, he is described as three. Uh, And that triune nature of God is written right through the Bible from beginning to end. So Genesis 1, we read, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. A few verses later, then God said, let us, plural, make mankind in our image, in our likeness. In Isaiah, we have a promised son. Uh, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And the standout thing in that verse is not the fact that a virgin will give birth, but that word Emmanuel which means God with us. Uh, So David, King David, is given the title son and he's given a God-given authority. But the language of the Old Testament always looks forward to a true son, an eternal son, 
who's going to have a unique role. Uh, unique uh, role in terms of his relationship to, to God and, and the triune nature of God. A unique relationship with humanity, but still in essence inseparable from the Father and the Spirit. And his role is perhaps bigger than we appreciate. He is the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Uh, So God the Father didn't create everything, uh, bask in its goodness for a moment, and then sort of hand it over to the Son to then sort of look after the day today. Uh, The Son created and the Son has authority. And his creative ability isn't just limited to the visible. It's everything. Uh, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, Paul is pretty thorough in making sure there is no doubt about the scope of the Son's power. It's an all-encompassing picture. There's not a single corner or cupboard in all of existence that he did not create and he does not have authority over. The Son is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and everything has been created through him and for him, and in him everything holds together. Uh, It doesn't mean that the Son is in the trees. Uh, But if you removed the sun from being involved with his creation, then all of creation, including the trees, would die. But Paul writes all of this to give the Colossian Christians confidence about who they've committed to following. Uh, But as we read this passage, at least for some, I suspect it also brings feelings of confrontation uh, and perhaps confusion. Uh, Now, that's not what this passage is about, but I think it's worth digressing for a second. I think that the confronting is the unspoken but inevitable conclusion that if the Son created everything, then he created the capacity for evil. And we see that capacity in the Bible right from the start. So God even planted a tree in the garden that represented the knowledge of good and evil. And the servant who represents the existence of evil is already in the garden before sin enters the world. And Adam and Eve have a knowledge of good and evil in the sense that they know what is right and wrong. They know it is good to listen to God and it is wrong to disobey God. What they didn't know was the experience of evil and the power of evil, and they didn't know just how profoundly it corrupts our nature and how it separates us from the love of the God who created us. And that corruption is all-consuming. It has corrupted humanity and has corrupted all of creation in both the visible and the invisible world. Uh, Which begs the question, you know, why allow evil when you know that you're going to have to fix it later? And the closest thing we get to an answer is in Romans. And it's not an easy answer to hear. But this is what it says. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known 
to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Now, for some, as you read that verse or hear that verse, it's just too much. Uh, Some will say, I cannot believe in a God that would intentionally allow evil into the world, knowing that it's going to result in some suffering his wrath. And it's not enough that some will experience glory. Uh, If that is our response, it doesn't solve the problem of suffering and evil. It doesn't solve the problem of injustice in the world. And God's existence isn't dependent on him conforming to our expectations. And so in the end, our outrage just leaves us choosing hopelessness and choosing to be objects of wrath. Uh, God has chosen for evil to be part of our experience and he has walked with us in that brokenness uh, to the point of dying on the cross. And he has offered and prepared a solution. Uh, So coming to terms with God's role in allowing evil is confronting. I think the confusion comes when God doesn't use his power the way we feel he should use his power. If he has the power to create everything, then he has the power to deal with my unemployment or my terminal illness or my struggle with sin. And part of the problem is our expectation. We say things like, let go and let God, and God's got it, uh, which sound great, uh, they are good sentiments, but often what we mean is I'm trusting that God is going to deliver what I want him to deliver in the way that I would like him to deliver it. And in his goodness and mercy, he well might. But that's not his promise. Uh, I want you to imagine uh, you're playing golf with Jesus, okay? This is, now, so, so you're playing, I don't even play golf, but stay with me. Um, so you're playing golf with Jesus and he's the caddy, right? Now, already you can see there's something wrong with this illustration. But I think sometimes that's how we approach God. You know, I'm playing the game and, and he's there to help me out. Anyway, you get to the 13th, right? And the 13th just has like pure bush down one side. And then there's a sand trap and a sand trap. And then the green is like this, you know, middle of like a, a moat. In the, right? So you're looking at this thing. It's, it's almost impossible, right? And, and then it's blowing a gale, right, from, you know, straight across the fairway. Okay, so this is a terrible situation, right? So you, you see it, you're weighing it all up and you go, you know what, I reckon this is a good time to, to let Jesus take control here. And so, you know, Jesus, will you, will you take this one for me? Okay, very wise choice, right? So he lines it up and he cracks the ball. Right, and he cracks it straight into the bush. Right, and you're going, come on. Right, and you turn to Jesus, and you're trying to be patient at this point. And you say, you know, Jesus, the whole point of the game is to get the little white ball into the little hole. And Jesus turns around and says, well, actually, that's the point of your game. And the point of my game is to teach you godliness, to teach you humility and character. And so, actually, he's achieving everything that he wants to achieve, but it's not always what we want to achieve. And I think so often in life, we've turned all of that around. We think it's about God doing all the good stuff for us, rather than how are we going to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, to pick up the language from last week. 
So Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, uh, and that is exceptionally good news because the one who has power to create everything also has the power to reconcile us to himself. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. You know, it seems odd to start with the body of Christ as an introduction to his reconciling power. But church at its most fundamental is a gathering of the reconciled. Uh, reconciled to God, but also reconciled to one another. And so a little bit later in this letter, Paul will write here... There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Uh, So in Christ, we have a bunch of people who in worldly terms have very little in common and often in the context of Colossians look down on one another, but here in Christ, they're reconciled. And that reconciliation isn't just happening amongst people, it's a reconciliation that's happening across all of creation. Uh, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And it's a reconciliation that is only possible through what Jesus has achieved in his death and resurrection. I remember watching a debate online uh, years ago uh, between a Christian by the name of John Lennox, who used to be a professor at Oxford University, and an influential atheist at the time uh, by the name of Richard Dawkins. And near the end of the debate, uh, Richard makes this comment. He says, It all quite really comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. It is a fundamental incompatibility with the sophisticated science scientist. It's so petty, it's so trivial, it's so local, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe. Uh, For Dawkins, it is earthbound because he he doesn't recognise or accept the implications of the cross for the universe and everything that exists, seen and unseen. But a time will come when the sun will bring that reconciliation to its proper completeness. Uh, It won't be an end, but it will be an end to our experience marred by sin. And for Dawkins, the resurrection seems petty and trivial because either he doesn't believe individual people are worth it and worth God's attention, or he doesn't believe sin is that serious. And so the idea of God choosing to share in our humanity and to deal with the dust and the dirt and the humiliation of being mocked and tortured and killed just seems absurd. That something so great, someone so powerful would endure that for something so small. Now, creation emphasises God's power and the cross emphasises God's love, but it also emphasises the seriousness of our sin. And it is serious. Uh, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. You know, alienated is pretty strong language. You know, it's more than just sort of a minor dispute that you can sort of deal with with a text message and a few emojis. You know, it's this complete 
breakdown of a relationship where it's impossible to imagine that relationship ever being reconciled. There's just too much damage. Uh, That's us before God. Our default state is that we are enemies. It's not that God doesn't love us, but we don't love God. We are enemies in our mind. Uh, We don't want to acknowledge God. We don't want to submit to God. And actually, who's God to tell me how to live? And that alienation is clearly evident in the way we choose to live. Uh, Evil is one of those words that we generally reserve for the worst of the worst. Uh, Murderers are evil. Uh, I'd like to suggest the bagpipes are also evil. (laughs) But we don't see ourselves as evil. Uh, we perhaps even, even the language of sinful is more palatable than evil. Uh, but really, they're the same thing. It's not about whether we are a nicer person or a meaner person. It's about our relationship with God and our rejection of God. And that's who we are as we stand by ourselves in our own glory. Uh, sometimes defiantly, sometimes just oblivious uh, to the problem. And there is nothing we can do to undo who we are and who we have become. Uh, Thankfully, God doesn't leave the reconciling to us and he intervenes through his son. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. His blood shed on the cross pay the price for our sin, a life for a life, and in his resurrection, the proof that that price has been paid. And the resurrection confirms his supremacy over everything, including death. And his death and his resurrection put together means there will be mercy and not just justice when one day we stand before God. And it leaves us without blemish, And free from accusation because Jesus has taken all of the consequences of our sin and he's taken them on himself. Uh, So often we're complacent about sin, uh, but we get to a point when we start to recognise our sin. And when we do, our sin potentially becomes crippling. Uh, It cripples us with guilt and fear. And in one sense, that's not totally bad. Guilt in the context of sin is good. Uh, It's an internal acknowledgement that something's wrong. And if you can recognise something's wrong, then you can recognise that you need to put things right. And so guilt can poke and prod and prompt us to come back to God, to acknowledge our sin and repent and turn away from that. But once we've done that, then guilt's job is done. Uh, We need to let go of that guilt because Jesus has dealt with it. All of that guilt has been dealt with on the cross. Uh, We still might have all sorts of consequences of our choices that we need to deal with, but before God, our sin has been dealt with, our future is secure. Uh, In all of this, Paul is talking to Christians and he's saying, there is no one more powerful than the Son. There is no one else you need besides Jesus and there's no one else who can reconcile you to God. So in Christ you have everything. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Uh, And this is where it gets up close and personal. 
Uh, If our faith is genuine, then we will continue because God and Christ doesn't just provide the means of reconciliation through his death and resurrection. He also moves stubborn, thankless hearts to desire reconciliation, to bring us to that point of recognising the Lordship of the Son and repenting and turning away from our evil behaviour. And if you've never made that faith commitment, and if you feel like you're more of an observer when it comes to sort of church and being a Christian uh, than a participant, then perhaps today God is moving you uh, as you listen to who Jesus is in all his glory. Uh, it might be moving your heart to find out more. Uh, it might be moving your heart to say, actually, today I need to make a choice. I need to stop playing around the edges and I need to commit. Uh, If that is you, uh, then can I suggest a few things? Uh, Firstly, talk to someone. Uh, If you're here with someone today, have a chat. Uh, If you're not sure who else to talk to, uh, you're welcome to talk to me. Uh, If you just want to keep exploring quietly for yourself, you you don't want to put your hand up quite at this point, then there's a few books in the breezeway. So there's a little shelf that says free books because they're free, Uh, and take whatever book you want. Uh, There's a Bible there, if that's helpful. Uh, There's a book that I quite like uh, by Tim Keller called Reason for God. Uh, There's another one by uh, Rachel McLaughlin, uh, and the title I can't remember. You'd think I would have written that one down. Um, But just have a look. There's only a few there. We don't make it confusing. Uh, Have a look, take one, read it. If you ever bring it back, all well and good. If you don't, don't worry about it. Uh, The the point is take, read, and, and just pray that God might convince you of what's true. Uh, But whatever you do, can I encourage us to do something? On that, let me close and pray. Dear Lord, in your creation, you have revealed your supremacy over all things. And in the events of the cross, you've revealed your love for us. I pray that we might respond in faith and accept that love and accept your reconciliation and embrace the joy of your salvation. Amen.